0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, A Love Supreme, Cornel West. Examined Life, a 2008 film by activist and documentarian Astra Taylor, represents a unique cinematic effort at displaying the beauty of philosophy, as it features eight philosophers espousing their views for the camera in a variety of public settings—parks, airports, busy city streets. This visually rich approach allows us to listen to thinkers working through thoughts about the human condition while seeing them in the midst of humanity itself, in all its hustle and bustle. The film begins in the back of a car driving down a street in Manhattan. We are with Cornell West. Wearing, as always, his signature three piece suit. His first words to us are, The unexamined life is not worth living, words that he is, of course, taking from Socrates as depicted by Plato. Indeed, West adds from memory that this is line 38a of the Apology. As he expands on what this Socratic phrase means to him, he is led eventually to the thought that philosophy is fundamentally about our finite situation as human beings. What does it mean to say that we are finite? West effortlessly rattles off this eloquent explanation. We're beings toward death. We're featherless, two-legged, linguistically conscious creatures born between urine and feces, whose bodies will one day be the culinary delight of terrestrial worms. That's us. A memorable way to start a film about philosophy and a fine introduction to the philosopher Cornell West. To call him a philosopher should not be very controversial, as he got his PhD in that discipline. In fact, he got it in the 1970s from Princeton University, at a time when the philosophy department there was widely viewed as the best in the United States. On the other hand, despite having held positions at many of the country's most prestigious institutions, like Harvard, Yale, and his alma mater, Princeton, he has never held a primary appointment in a philosophy department, teaching most often in religious studies and black studies. He currently teaches at Union Theological Seminary. When George Yancey included an interview with West in his 1998 book, African-American Philosophers, 17 Conversations, he asked West directly, do you see yourself as a professional philosopher? West answered, no, not at all. Elaborating upon why, he said, I think if I were to call myself anything, it would be a man of letters who's deeply immersed in philosophical texts and literary texts, deeply concerned also with scientific texts, but science much more is one element in the quest for wisdom rather than science as a way of gaining knowledge in order to dominate nature. So, in that sense, I have an intellectual curiosity that is quite broad, but I've never viewed myself as an academic or professional philosopher in a narrow sense. The interview with West is the second one in Yancey's book, following his interview with Angela Davis, whom we met in episode 126. Especially at the time of the book's publication, Davis and West stood out as by far the two most famous interviewees in Yancey's book. Davis was initially hired by the philosophy department at UCLA in 1969 but after the ordeal of her arrest and trial in the early 1970s, she too spent most of her academic career outside of traditional philosophy departments. As we approach the end of the 20th century then, we arrive at a time where key figures in the history of Africana philosophical thought were being professionally trained by philosophy departments, but ultimately finding employment outside the discipline. We will consider in an upcoming episode how those who did find employment within the discipline during the last three decades of the century began to reshape professional philosophy for their own purposes. But in the case of Cornell West, we have the instructive paradox of a man who could fairly be described as one of the best-known American professional philosophers of any race, nevertheless bristling with discomfort at the limitation of being called a professional philosopher. Let us begin to understand this paradox by tracing his path toward the profession. As we learn in his 2009 memoir, Brother West, Living and Loving Out Loud, West was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and spent some early years in Topeka, Kansas, before growing up in Sacramento, the capital of California. The Black Church was above all else in his childhood, deeply formative for this grandson of a preacher. He was only just barely into his teen years, however, when West became smitten by Western philosophy. He read and loved Arthur Schopenhauer and Søren Kierkegaard. Also formative were the times he spent during his high school years at the headquarters of the Sacramento chapter of the Black Panther Party. Talking and learning. He admired much about the Panthers, but resisted joining because he could not accept the atheism that came along with their Marxism. Defending his faith, he would point out to the Panthers that every time he came around, they were listening to Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye, James Brown, and so on. These were, West noted, church folk, with musical contributions inseparable from their Christian roots. As West saw it, even when disbelieving in God, the Panthers were being led by music made out of the love of God. This anecdote is a fitting introduction to his recurring concerns with the roles of faith and music in the Black struggle against oppression. In 1970, West went east, from California to Massachusetts, to go to Harvard University. There he found a mentor in Martin Kilson, the political scientist who had only a few years before West's arrival become the first Black professor to be tenured at Harvard. Kilson himself had been mentored by W.E.B. Du Bois, and he encouraged West's attraction to the life of the mind. Kilson was, however, hostile to the Panthers, with whom West continued to associate during his Harvard years, and also to the new discipline of Black Studies as it was taking shape at Harvard and elsewhere. Harvard's Afro-American Studies Department had been founded in 1969 and was run by Ewart Gunier, an accomplished Jamaican-American activist and father to one of the thinkers we discussed in our last episode, Lani Gunier. West's mentor, Kelson, clashed publicly with the elder Gunier over the rigor and value of the new department. West, for his part, could understand why the old guard had trouble letting go of the scholastic structure they had accepted all their lives, but neither this nor his love for his mentor could prevent him from siding with Guineer. As West writes in his memoir, I stood with my fellow students, convinced then, as I am now, of the need to break down the old paradigm that tended to marginalize black humanity. West already knew he wanted to get his PhD in philosophy when he graduated from Harvard with a degree in Near Eastern languages and literature. He decided to get a degree in that discipline because he had taken enough courses in that field to make it possible to graduate a year early and thus save his parents some money. He began his graduate school career at Princeton in 1973, and soon enough finished his coursework and attained the status of ABD, all but dissertation. In his memoir, he remarks, If it sounds like a disease or psychological disorder, well, dear brother or sister, that ain't far from the truth. I suffered with ABD for years. West struggled with disciplinary boundaries during this time, as he felt unable to exist as a straight up philosopher, particularly once he discovered a notorious addiction of his, The Classics of Russian Literature. He tells us, All I wanted to do was read novels, and Russian novels to boot. During this time, he also experimented with being a creative writer himself, composing Sing a Song, a short story revolving around the death of Duke Ellington, that he would later publish in his book, Prophetic Fragments. Yet here, we arrive at another paradox. Even as he was finding it difficult to focus on philosophy, he published one of his most important philosophical works, an essay entitled Philosophy and the Afro-American Experience, which we are going to discuss at length. It came out in the 1977-78 issue of the journal The Philosophical Forum, part of a groundbreaking collection of work in what Lucius Outlaw would soon label Africana philosophy, as the issue featured work by philosophers from both Africa and the African diaspora. West's essay offers us a creative and visionary conception of African-American philosophy, a conception he would refine and present to the world again in his first book, the one he has long cited as his favorite among his own works, 1982's Prophesied Deliverance, an Afro-American Revolutionary Christianity. Chapter 3 of that book, The Four Traditions of Response, is a shortened and revised version of Philosophy and the Afro-American Experience. Those who only know the shorter version in Prophesied Deliverance miss out on the highly significant metaphilosophical musings that begin philosophy and the Afro-American experience. West argues that Afro-American philosophy can only emerge once we adopt a critical attitude toward the Cartesian philosophical worldview. He takes the conception of philosophy that developed in the West in the wake of René Descartes' writings in the 17th century to prevent us from taking something like Afro-American philosophy seriously. The Cartesian mindset, as West describes it, assumes the absolute autonomy of philosophy, the independence of philosophy from culture, society, and history. Because from the Cartesian perspective, philosophical problems are a set of perennial questions about such things as how the mind relates to the body, questions that float free of cultural, societal, and historical change. Hence the widespread assumption that philosophers must abstract from everyday reality in order to seek timeless truths. West points out that if this is the only valid philosophical stance, then the very idea of an Afro-American philosophy turns out to be ludicrous. Since West does not believe the idea is ludicrous, it follows that what he calls the Cartesian viewpoint is not the only valid philosophical stance. And happily, he has some heavyweight allies on his side. Three important philosophers of the 20th century, namely Martin Heidegger, Ludwig Wittgenstein, and John Dewey, Took steps towards conceiving philosophy in a way suitable for the project of Afro American philosophy. Take first Heidegger, from whom West was drawing in his explanation of what it means for us to be finite beings when he called us beings toward death. Heidegger, according to West, makes it the task of philosophy to interpret human experience in a way that requires us to recognize ourselves as historical beings. West articulates Heidegger's metaphilosophical insight this way Philosophy is the hermeneutical analysis. That interprets what it means to be for personal selves who remember a past, anticipate a future, and decide in the present. Though this does free us from treating philosophy as a search for timeless truths, West also criticizes Heidegger for having an overly individualistic approach to understanding human existence. He looks to Wittgenstein, and in particular to the late Wittgenstein, the author of the posthumously published Philosophical Investigations, for help in overcoming this deficiency. By turning philosophy into an investigation of our linguistic practices, or the language games we create, modify, and accept as users of a shared language, Wittgenstein helps us to recognize ourselves as communal beings, and to move further away still from the Cartesian viewpoint. Here then we have a second metaphilosophical insight. Philosophy is the detailed description of linguistic social practices within distinct cultural ways of life. Yet West finds Wittgenstein lacking too. With respect to the normative or action-guiding dimension of philosophy. Detailed descriptions of linguistic practices may help us better understand how we live together, but do they help us decide which ways of living together are better and worse? Philosophy needs a critical dimension, which we can get from Dewey, with his pragmatist vision of philosophy as a means of dealing with the challenges we face as social beings. Dewey, in Westview, is appropriately sensitive to our historical and cultural natures, thus combining what we get from Heidegger and Wittgenstein. While furthermore, correcting for their lack of an ethical orientation toward criticizing and improving society. Thus, yet another metaphilosophical insight philosophy is the interpretation of a people's past for the purpose of solving specific problems presently confronting the cultural way of life from which the people come. Having reached this culminating point in his philosophical tour of the 20th century, West stands ready to offer us a conception of Afro American philosophy. And here it is. Afro-American philosophy is the interpretation of Afro-American history, highlighting the cultural heritage and political struggles, which provides desirable norms that should regulate responses to particular challenges presently confronting Afro-Americans. West's strategy in arriving at this definition boldly linked the development of African-American philosophy to the cutting edge in American philosophical thought. West was a graduate student at Princeton, and among the professors there was Richard Rorty. Rorty had been at Princeton since the early 1960s, but he was about to become a lot more famous than he ever was before for his 1979 book Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature, which would soon shake up the discipline. West's essay reflects the influence of Rorty's thought as represented in that later book. West acknowledges this in a footnote, admitting that he follows the brilliant work of Professor Richard Rorty of Princeton University, brilliant work that was as yet unpublished, but that West accurately predicted would be of paramount importance for thinkers of the future. The very choice to elevate the trio of Heidegger, Wittgenstein, and Dewey is a sign of Rorty's impact. In Philosophy and the Mirror of Nature, they are identified as the three most important philosophers of our century, and credited with giving us new maps of the terrain. We can see West's definition of Afro-American philosophy as a use of these new maps to navigate the territory of philosophy and locate his people within it and locate them he does, for he goes on to discuss a remarkable number of African-American writers and artists. He examines four traditions in Afro-American thought and behavior, each offering a different way of responding to what he identifies as the challenges of self-image and self-determination. By this he means that African-Americans must figure out how to view themselves in a world in which they have been so often denigrated and degraded, and gain more control over the institutions regulating their lives in spite of a history of exploitation and exclusion. What then are the four traditions that have taken up these challenges? First is the vitalist tradition, which logs the uniqueness of Afro-American culture and personality. This may sound appealing, but West finds this approach lacking. Note first that vitalism comes in two flavors, strong or weak. Strong vitalism holds that Afro-Americans stand above other racial groups because of their genetic makeup, divine chosenness, or innate endowments. Weak vitalism also holds the group to be superior, but on sociological rather than natural or divine grounds. They stand above other racial groups because of certain values, modes of behavior, or gifts acquired from their endurance of political oppression, social degradation, and economic exploitation. If the reference to gifts here reminds you of W.E.B. Du Bois, then pat yourself on the back, for Du Bois is indeed the first figure that West associates with the vitalist tradition. He does not take Du Bois to be a weak vitalist, though. West interprets the view that Du Bois puts forth in his classic essay, The Conservation of Races, according to which African Americans must embrace their Black racial identity so they can participate in delivering the special Black message to civilization as a form of strong vitalism. He finds it next in James Weldon Johnson's preface to his pioneering anthology, The Book of American Negro Poetry, where Johnson, echoing things said by Du Bois, calls the African-American the creator of the only things artistic that have sprung from American soil and have been universally acknowledged as distinctive American products. Strong vitalism continued from there as a significant part of the Harlem Renaissance and eventually the Black Power era as well. From the early foundation of the Nation of Islam's doctrine to the Christian version in Albert Clegg's Black Theology, and then a number of poets of the Black Arts Movement, including Amiri Baraka. If this already seems like a big umbrella, remember that this is just strong vitalism. West finds weak vitalism among such disparate but central figures of the tradition as Marcus Garvey and Martin Luther King Jr. West claims that King's doctrine of nonviolence, for example, involved the assumption that. Afro-Americans have acquired, as a result of their historical experience, a peculiar capacity to love their enemies. West criticizes the self-image fostered by the vitalist tradition as defensive in character and romantic in content, a reaction to the doctrine of white supremacy that roots pride and self-worth in myths of Black superiority. He also links the tradition to the gradual growth of the Black middle class, arguing that the claim of superiority can be seen as a cloak for the repressed self-doubts, fears, and anxieties experienced by this class. This leads West to diagnose vitalism as part of the problem with the elitism of Du Bois's theory of the talented tenth, with the embrace of entrepreneurial capitalism associated with the Garvey movement and Nation of Islam, and with the pursuit of middle-class status facilitated by King's fight for integration. Perhaps most harshly, West says of the Harlem Renaissance and the Black Arts Movement, Both movements produced mediocre art, romanticized the Afro-American lower class, and launched lucrative careers for a few middle-class artists, previously excluded from the white American world of art. The second of the four traditions turns out to be a mirror image of the first. This is the rationalist tradition, which considers Afro-American culture and personality to be pathological. In other words, if the vitalists treat African Americans as superior, the rationalists treat them as inferior if not by nature, then at least on sociological grounds. This approach is exemplified by E. Franklin Frazier. Referring to his 1932 book, The Negro Family in Chicago, West sees Frazier as reducing African-American culture to superstition, ignorance, self-hatred, and fear. From this perspective, the only way forward is the pursuit of assimilation, the full embrace of white culture. Like the vitalist romanticization of African-American culture, The rationalist converse impulse to lament the shortcomings of that culture is born out of black middle class anxiety. West views Frazier's later criticism of the black middle class in his book, Black Bourgeoisie, as a belated attempt to reverse the tradition he set in motion before. West's preferred tradition, which he calls humanism, will neither glorify African Americans as superior nor demonize them as inferior, but there's one more tradition to discuss before we see how the humanists can save the day. This is the existentialist tradition, which posits Afro-American culture to be restrictive, constraining, and confining. West gives many examples of thinkers in this tradition, and all of them are creative writers. The tradition reaches its zenith with Richard Wright, who represents in so much of his art and life a stance of rebellion against the confines of the culture that shaped him. West notes that James Baldwin, before publishing any novels of his own, criticized Wright for failing to capture the beauty in black humanity in Native Son. Yet when Baldwin produced his debut novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, he showed himself to be part of the same tradition as Wright. As West puts it, when he looked closely into his own life, he saw most precisely what Wright saw, terror, fear, and self-hatred. West claims that Baldwin does not hate African-American culture, but simply cannot overlook the stifling effects it has on nonconformists bringing his story up to the decade in which he is writing, West cites Gail Jones and Toni Morrison as writers who illustrate the restrictive boundaries which confine and stifle Afro-American women. West acknowledges that the marginality explored by this tradition, its concern with loosening the constraints on individuality in Black life, provides space for creativity. Ultimately, though, he takes the approach to be parasitic in that its members accept the self-image found in the rationalist or humanist camps. In other words, at its worst, the existentialist tradition falls back upon a notion of African Americans as inferior, as needing salvation through assimilation into white culture. At its best, though, the tradition acknowledges problematic aspects of African American culture while evading the slide into a negative judgment of the culture as a whole. At its best, then, the existentialist leads the way towards the humanist tradition. The humanist self-image, according to West, is one neither of heroic superhumans untouched by the experience of oppression, nor of pathetic subhumans devoid of a supportive culture. Rather, Afro Americans are viewed as both meek and belligerent, kind and cruel, creative and dull, in short, as human beings. Unlike the vitalist, the humanist accents the universal human content of Afro American cultural forms. Once African Americans are recognized as full human beings, we can appreciate the particular ways they have expressed their humanity, in the midst and in spite of the dehumanizing forms of oppression they have experienced. Which figures best represent the humanist tradition? Here we find West rejecting the assumption that we must look only to textual sources for these traditions, as he takes this opportunity to insist on the importance of Black musical traditions. The rich pathos of sorrow and joy simultaneously present in the spirituals, the exuberant and lyrical tragicomedy of the blues, and the improvisational character of jazz affirm Afro-American humanity. Indeed, according to West, music does it best. No textual sources compare. He does go on to mention a number of literary figures, though, like Langston Hughes, or Neil Hurston and Ralph Ellison. Moving to political struggle, he mentions names like A. Philip Randolph, the later Du Bois, Paul Robeson, post Mecca Malcolm X, Huey P. Newton, Angela Davis, and the later Amiri Baraka. Given the time he was writing, he could also have just said the most recent Amiri Baraka. What all these political thinkers share, West tells us, is a belief in the necessity of democratic control over institutions in the productive and political processes. There's a clear contrast here with the middle-class anxiety he associates with the vitalist and rationalist traditions. West takes the value of the humanist tradition to lie in its promotion of an unconstrained individuality, strengthened by an honest encounter with the Afro-American past and the expansion of democratic control over the major institutions that regulate lives in America and abroad. There are two main reasons we've spent so much time looking at philosophy and the Afro-American experience. First, West's deep engagement with the intellectual legacies of thinkers and artists of the past is particularly relevant to consider at this point in our series. There he was, at the beginning of his career, a philosophy graduate student, and he looked backward, casting a wide net in order to present us with a sort of canon of Black philosophical thought in America in the 20th century. As we approach the end of our own effort to tell the story of Africana philosophy in the 20th century, it's instructive to see how he carved out and critically evaluated this set of traditions. The second reason for our focus on his essay of the late 1970s is that it puts on display themes and tendencies that run through West's thought from then until now. It is therefore a perfect introduction to his thought, and as we move on to summarizing his intellectual path in the 1980s and 90s, we will see that many of his intellectual efforts, since philosophy and the Afro-American experience, can be understood as trees with their roots in the ground of this early essay. Take, for example, the class analysis, so central to his evaluations of the vitalist and rationalist traditions. If this struck you as evidence of Marxist influence on West's thought, then another pat on the back is in order. While West went through whole drafts of dissertations on other topics, the topic he settled on when managing to complete and defend his dissertation was Marx's view of ethics. It was 1980 when he finished the dissertation, which he titled Ethics, Historicism, and the Marxist Tradition. Over a decade later, in 1991, it was published as a book under the title The Ethical Dimensions of Marxist Thought. West wrote a new introduction for this book version titled The Making of an American Democratic Socialist of African Descent*. It is significant that West did not title this new introduction The Making of an American Marxist of African Descent*. His relationship with Marxism has been a complicated one, and writing in 1991, he was careful to describe himself as a non-Marxist socialist. Reading the dissertation itself, though, one does not get the sense that West wishes to distance himself from Marxism as such, but rather from Marxist philosophers, a group that, importantly, does not include Marx himself. Which is fair enough, given that supposedly Marx himself remarked that he was not a Marxist. West's argument in the dissertation is that Marx developed over time into a radical historicist about ethics. What this means is that Marx came to reject the idea that it is possible to ground moral judgments in universally accessible and applicable rational principles. For the radical historicist, there can be no timeless criteria, necessary grounds, or universal foundations for ethics. All that underlies our moral judgments are contingent community-specific agreements people make in relation to particular norms, aims, goals, and objectives. Here, West treats ethics the way he treated philosophy in philosophy, and the Afro-American experience. As something previously thought to be a matter of timeless validity, it is in fact historically and culturally variable. Indeed, he admits in the introduction that, like philosophy and the Afro-American experience before it, his dissertation was shaped by what he was learning from Rorty and reading in Dewey as a graduate student. On the other hand, while he framed things in the earlier essay as involving the rejection of one conception of philosophy for another, he was often happy in the dissertation to depict Marx as simply rejecting philosophy. This is what separated him, according to West, from Marxist thinkers, including his collaborator, Friedrich Engels, and subsequent luminaries like Karl Kautsky and Georgi Lukács. West takes all three of these thinkers to be not radical, but merely moderate historicists who continued to believe in philosophy as a search for universal certainty. Thus he closes the dissertation with this sentence. The failure of the Marxist philosophers is that they ultimately remain philosophers, whereas Marx's radical historicist, metaphilosophical vision enables him to stop doing philosophy and to begin to describe, explain, and ultimately change the world. West finished the dissertation while already a few years into his first job, which was at the same institution that employs him today, Union Theological Seminary. Here his colleagues included James Cohn, whose black theology we discussed in episode 113, and James Melvin Washington, a historian of the African-American church who became one of West's closest friends. Also important to him around this time was his involvement in the Democratic Socialists of America, arguably the most important leftist political organization in the United States. West was a founding member and eventually served as honorary chairman. Taking his employment at a seminary to represent his commitment to Christianity, and his participation in the DSA to represent his commitment to socialism, we can say that the time was right for him to combine these themes in the aforementioned book Prophesy Deliverance and Afro-American Revolutionary Christianity. A third theme present in the book is, once again, the American philosophical tradition of pragmatism, especially as represented by Dewey. West endorses, for example, pragmatism's conception of the pursuit of knowledge as a form of intersubjective communal inquiry. Perhaps the central claim of the book, however, is this one, found at the beginning of the fourth chapter. Christianity and Marxism are the most vulgarized, distorted traditions in the modern world, yet I believe the alliance of prophetic Christianity and progressive Marxism provides a last humane hope for humankind. He seeks to demonstrate this by showing how the two can complement each other through constructive criticism of the other's weaknesses. West garnered increasing amounts of attention over the course of the 1980s, collecting many of his shorter writings in his 1988 book, Prophetic Fragments, Illuminations of the Crisis in American Religion and Culture. The following year, he published what is arguably his strongest work of scholarship, and certainly the book of his most squarely focused on philosophy and philosophers. Ironically enough, its title is The American Evasion of Philosophy, A Genealogy of Pragmatism. We are thus confronted once again by West's recurring sense that philosophy is something worth evading. The way he puts it in the book is that the American pragmatist tradition rejects epistemology-centered philosophy, resulting in a conception of philosophy as a form of cultural criticism in which the meaning of America is put forward by intellectuals in response to distinct social and cultural crises. Ralph Waldo Emerson is the starting point of this story, with serious attention paid to the subsequent contributions of Charles Sanders Peirce, William James, John Dewey, Willard von Orman Quine, and Richard Rorty. Right before the chapter on Quine and Rorty is a chapter titled The Dilemma of the Mid-Century Pragmatic Intellectual, which features a variety of figures, most importantly for our purposes, Du Bois, whom West describes as a Jamesian organic intellectual. In the final chapter, Prophetic Pragmatism, Cultural Criticism, and Political Engagement, West situates himself in the tradition he is sketching because prophetic pragmatism is a term he invented. Drawing, of course, on the prophetic dimension of Christianity that he prized in Prophesied deliverance. West claims that prophetic pragmatism makes the political motivation and the political substance of the American evasion of philosophy explicit, in a way that previous figures in the pragmatist tradition did not. If West was in the 1980s a steadily rising intellectual star, then the 1990s is when he skyrocketed to the position of one of America's most famous public intellectuals. We can even specify 1993 as the year this happened, but before saying why that year was so special, We have to mention "Breaking Bread: Insurgent Black Intellectual Life," the remarkable book he co-authored with bell hooks in 1991. It is made up of a series of conversations between hooks and West. After an introduction to the book as a whole, itself structured as a dialogue, and the transcript of a public conversation they had at Yale on black men and women partnership in the 1990s, hooks writes up a short but substantial introduction to Cornell West, and this is followed by an interview with West conducted by her they then exchange roles, with West providing an introduction to Bill Hooks and then interviewing her. There are also two more dialogical chapters before the book closes with a pair of essays. First, West's essay, The Dilemma of the Black Intellectual, originally published in 1985 and widely recognized as a powerful meditation on the different kinds of black intellectual one can aspire to be. And finally, Hooks's essay, Black Women Intellectuals, which responds to and builds on West's peace it's difficult to think of other books that are so firmly and creatively committed to the value of dialogue. Coming now to 1993, West was in a very productive mode, publishing multiple books that year. But the one that changed his life the most was a little book called Race Matters. As he explains in Brother West, it was the right book at the right time, a collection of eight brief but thoughtful essays on race relations in the United States, appearing at a time when the country was still reeling from the 1992 acquittal of the Los Angeles police officers who were filmed beating Rodney King and the massive riots that took place in that city following the verdict. West touched on everything from affirmative action to Black Jewish relations, from the rise of a new Black conservatism to the taboos surrounding Black sexuality, from the controversy surrounding Clarence Thomas's confirmation as a Supreme Court judge, to the ongoing significance of Malcolm X's rage. The chapter that turned out to be most controversial was the very first one, Nihilism in Black America, in which West confronted what he took to be a sort of epidemic of hopelessness among African Americans in the 1990s. He argued at the essay's end that what was needed to combat this problem was a love ethic. While some critics have charged West with falling into the trap of conservative victim blaming in his account of African American nihilism, West has vigorously denied the charge. In any case, West, after race matters, was in demand like never before. President Bill Clinton read it, gave it to his wife and daughter to read, and invited West to the White House to discuss it with him in person. West has remained one of America's best-known intellectual voices since then, and speaking of the White House, at the time we are recording this episode, West is in fact running for president as an independent. We're not necessarily saying you have to vote for him, but you should definitely elect to join us next time, when we will be joined by the man himself, for a wide-ranging interview about his thought and career in what surely ranks as a candidate for one of the most exciting ever episodes of The History of Africana Philosophy. <laughs>